fourth chapter of Revelation, as it related to the church being called up into heaven. Along with that, we looked at the doctrine of the rapture of the church. Tonight, we want to introduce the tribulation itself, and we're passing around an outline study that just breaks down some of the major events during the tribulation. It's divided into three sections. The first half, the middle of the tribulation, and then the second half. And as we look at this, we time in the framework that we are working with does not allow to study each chapter uh, verse by verse and look at all the details that are there. And so what I would like to do tonight is give a, uh, a general uh, overview of the tribulation, and then we'll go back and look at the first half and uh, pick a few of the points there that need to be dealt with, uh, at least I feel are important for us to look at, uh, and then do the same thing with the second half as well. I don't know how far we'll get tonight. I uh, never get as far as I think I'm going to get, so hopefully uh, we'll have enough material prepared to be able to cover the areas that we do want to cover. As we get started, there are seven things that appear uh, in heaven uh, just before the tribulation begins. And the biblical background for the, those seven things is in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 of Revelation. We looked at part of that last week. We saw the uh, Trinity uh, present there with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we saw that there were 24 elders that were identified uh, as sitting upon thrones uh, that were also in heaven. In addition uh, to that, there are some signs of judgment that were given uh, in uh, verse 5 of chapter 4, lightnings, thunderings, uh, voices, uh, seven lamps of fire, and seven spirits of God were all mentioned uh, in our examination last week. Lightnings are symbolic of visual, uh, a, vi a visual symbol of judgment. Thunderings are a symbol of, an audio symbol of judgments. Voices uh, indicate a principle of judgment. Uh, as it comes from heaven to the earth, as John sees it. And then the seven lamps of fire. Uh, lamps represent the testimony, and fire represents judgment. I still haven't give you that, given you that uh, list of biblical symbols, and I'll try to have that prepared for next time. Uh, but these are some of the things that uh, are there. And then the seven spirits of God represent the seven attributes of God. Uh, that we have examined previously. It's important for us to balance the attributes of God. Some people want to emphasize the love of God, and, and as they put a total emphasis upon the love of God, eliminate that attribute of God's righteousness that cries out for justice. And uh, they would determine that God will not allow one to spend eternity in hell because he's law. But God's justice demands uh, a penalty for sin. He provided that, and those who accept the provision that he has made 
uh, will be spared from that, but his justice demands that he remain faithful to his declarations. Then we saw the church at rest in heaven, described as a sea of glass there in heaven. We also saw the four living creatures, uh, four beasts, the King James English identifies them, but actually four living creatures as we uh, saw from the Greek text. Four living creatures represent the four aspects of Christ, the Messiah and his ministry. And we see that brought through, uh, you remember we looked at the Gospel of Matthew, the one of Mark, of Luke, and John, saying that Matthew presented Jesus Christ as king, represented by the lion, uh, that Mark presented Jesus as servant, which was represented by the ox. Luke presented Jesus as humanity, in his humanity, as represented by the man. And then John presented Jesus in his deity as represented by the flying eagle. Those being symbols, not only in religious literature, but in secular literature as well, uh, of those different aspects of Christ's life and ministry. And before the throne of God, there are these four living creatures. We also saw uh, the stage set for our uh, moving then into the fifth chapter. And in the fifth chapter, beginning with verses 1 and 4, we are introduced to the book of seals. And the book of seals identifies, I've said that it, it is the key to the book of Revelation, and it shows the characteristics uh, that are going to be prominent during the tribulational period. Out of the seventh seal uh, will come the trumpet judgments. And then in the fifth chapter, uh, we also, in verses 5 through 7, uh, have a picture of the judge of the earth, uh, Jesus Christ. We have what the presentation of the judge, and uh, Christ being the only one worthy uh, to open the book and to pour out God's divine wrath upon the earth. So let's look quickly uh, at Revelation chapter 5, at these introductory uh, verses, and then I want to break from that after we've identified these seven things that are in heaven just before the tribulation and look at uh, the outline that I've given out to you. And then we'll move back to the first part of the tribulation and look at some details there. In the original outline of the book, we said that the uh, first chapter was introduction. The second and third chapters portrayed the church, panoramic view of the church, history. The fourth chapter presented the church in heaven. The fifth chapter introduced the seven-sealed uh, seven scroll book. Have to slow down to say that right. And uh, the key to the book of Revelation. And then chapter 6 through half of chapter 19 is the tribulation. And then the last half of the 19th chapter and the 20th chapter, we go into the second advent, the millennial reign of Christ. And then in the 21st and 22nd chapters, the final judgment and the new heaven and the new earth of eternity. And so when we look at the fifth chapter, we're looking at that key that deals with the uh, entire book of Revelation as the focal point is a seven-sealed scroll that is offered. In verse 1 of chapter 5, John says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back sides, sealed with seven seals. 
actually a scroll rolled up, uh, written so far and then sealed, written further and rolled further and sealed uh, seven times so that there were seven uh, seals that would have to be broken to read the entirety uh, of the scroll as it's being presented. John says, No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereupon. When I, and I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals off. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are identified here. We don't have to go any further for biblical symbolism because they're identified in the text, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Again, the omniscience, the omnipresence, the sovereignty, the eternalness, the love, uh, the righteousness of God, all uh, summed up and, and sent throughout all the earth. As a matter of fact, when we read the book of Romans, uh, it tells us in the earlier cha early chapters that there is no human being that is without excuse because the, the very things of the Godhead are made known by the act of creation itself. And through the creative act, uh, any human being can become aware of God and if he desires to know God on God's terms, then Jesus tells us in his earthly ministry that God assumes the responsibility of getting him gospel information. That the very... Uh, things of the Godhead may be known by observing the things that God has created. And so the seven attributes of God are manifest in various ways uh, all throughout the earth. Verse 7 says, And he came, speaking of, of Christ being represented here as a lamb that had been slain, and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb ever and ever. Quite a lot of theology in that one verse. Every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him that sitteth upon the throne and of the Lamb forever and ever. That would include those that are in hell, by the way. Uh, hell at this point being 
described in the Hebrew as the word Sheol, and in the New Testament by the word Hades, both meaning the abode of the dead and the heart of the earth. And uh, already they have rendered uh, praise uh, unto God, according to John's declaration. It says, And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. So, John identifies the, the terrible state of sorrow that he was in when there was no one able to open the book, and then how that turned to joy uh, when he saw the Lamb uh, come forward to receive the book. And in the first verse of chapter 6, it says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. And then he starts the progression of opening the book. And as he opens the book, seal by seal, he reveals the things that are going to take place. Uh, in one of our earlier sessions, we gave out a, an outline, a brief uh, outline of the events of Revelation. And uh, so tonight, I want to, uh, at this point, uh, call your attention to the outline that we've distributed this evening and uh, remind you, review some of the things uh, that are going to occur in relationship to uh, the breaking of these seven seals. Uh, out of uh, the seventh seal comes the trumpet judgments. Uh, out of the uh, seventh trumpet seal comes the vile judgments. And we're going to be examining them uh, a little later. But the, the key is the seven sealed scroll uh, judgments as we would identify them or the seal judgments. During the first half of tribulation, We've already identified the churches gone from the earth. There are then 144,000 Jews that are saved and become evangelists. We've talked about them. We're going to uh, look at them a little more this evening. Judaism, then, during the first half of the tribulation, is firmly established in Palestine. My outline's a little old. Uh, I realized today I needed to change that word Palestine uh, with the coming on the scene of the Palestinians, uh, I found a lot of my eschatology stuff has a reference to to uh, the land of Israel and calling it Palestine, and there may soon be Palestine apart from that. But uh, when you see Palestine, think of it being the original Palestine, the land of Israel. Judaism is going to be firmly established then, uh, in at least by the first half of the tribulation. It may already be established uh, before we go, but at least immediately after we go, it will be firmly established. The Zionist movement that is already there uh, has certainly laid the groundwork uh, for its establishment. Right now, it's more of a uh, political uh, Israel that's there than a religious Israel. The religious leaders are in the minority, though they do have a strong influence but they have not yet been given free reign uh, to reestablish the, the religion of Judaism, uh, the, the building of the temple, the uh, renewing of the sacrificial system, and all that will relate to that. But it will be reestablished uh, at least during the first half of the tribulation, if not previous to that. Temple will be rebuilt, as I've said, and, and temple worship will be reinstituted uh, in unbelief, unbelief in the sense of 
uh, unbelief in the Messiah, uh, Jesus Christ being the Messiah. They are still looking uh, for the Messiah. 144,000 Jews uh, will not be part of that, that uh, temple ritual, but rather will be evangelizing in the name of Christ as the Messiah. In the first half of the tribulation, the first four sealed judgments will occur. The white horse, which is going to be a pseudo-peace, we're going to look at that. The red horse, which is a time of warfare. The black horse, which is a time of famine and inflation. And the pale horse, which is a time of death. The first four trumpet judgments will also occur during the first half of the tribulation. And they are going to uh, bring about natural disasters. Uh, first, against vegetation. One-third of all green, uh, one-third of all are going to be destroyed. I don't know if the bark beetle's laying the groundwork for that today, but uh, he's, they're, they're wreaking havoc in our immediate uh, environment. But can you imagine one-third of all the trees in all the world being destroyed? And that's going to occur in the first half of the tribulation. Uh, all green grass, all green grass is going to be destroyed in the first half of the tribulation. And then there will be judgment against the sea. A third of the sea will become blood. A third of the sea creatures will be killed. And a third of sea transportation will be destroyed. And then there's the judgment against fresh water with one third of all fresh water supply becoming poison. They better hope they have a little better reserve than we do now. A third of what we've got now wouldn't leave a whole lot uh, in our area, but uh, are two-thirds left to, to depend upon. One-third is going to become poison. And then there is a judgment against light. One-third of the sun's light is going to be lost. One-third of the light from the moon and stars is going to be lost. Uh, One-third of the time during the day it will be dark. A third of the time during the night will be total darkness. And then, in addition to uh, these trumpet judgments, the two beasts of Revelation are going to be, become very evident. Uh, there are two prominent beasts that are identified, one out of the land and the other out of the sea. Wherever we have land, it's always a reference to the Jews, to Israel. One out of the sea refers then to the Gentiles. And so one of these dictators will come uh, from Israel, and the other will come from the Gentile nations. In the middle of the tribulation, then, that three-and-a-half-year point, uh, there's going to be a great war in heaven, and Satan is going to be cast out. Now, uh, he already has lost his place in heaven, but he still has access to heaven. As a matter of fact, the word Satan means in the Greek, accuser. And he is constantly accusing us before God. Of course, we have a defense attorney. Uh, the New Testament says we have an advocate with the Lord Father. The word advocate means defense attorney. And uh, he represents us, and he's one with the Father who's the judge. So we've kind of got a, a pretty strong tie in there uh, to protect us against the accusations of Satan. Uh, but Satan still goes back and forth between the earth and heaven. At the midpoint of the tribulation, he will no longer be allowed in heaven. He will be confined totally to the earth at that point. Anti-Semitism is going to increase tremendously at the middle point, to the point at which the Jews are going to have to flee 
if they're going to survive, the believing Jews are going to have to flee, and God is providing for them. At the middle point of the tribulation, there will be an alliance made between the two beasts, the dictator uh, from the Gentiles and the dictator from Israel. Uh, an alliance will be formed between them and a statue, and the D-R-R-E, I'm always... Uh, great at putting initials instead of spelling things out. A dictator of the revived Roman Empire, and we'll be talking about him more. Dictator of the revived Roman Empire, D-R-R-E, uh, is the the beast out of the sea, and uh, he is going to have a statue of himself set up in the temple, and he is going to demand to be worshipped as God. The believers that are in Jerusalem, as we've already said, will need to flee to the mountains for safety, and uh, there will be two new witnesses that will begin their work of evangelization at the midway point. The mark of the beast, which will have been introduced earlier, will take full force at this particular point, the three and a half year mark of the tribulation. The last half of the tribulation, the last three sealed judgments will occur. Evangelism will be by the two witnesses because the believers will have fled and those that do not flee will be martyred. Many of them will be martyred. Uh, evangelism uh, is going to be by disaster and uh, the vile judgments, bowls or cups as they are called in various translation, uh, vials, actually it's a drinking cup. Uh, seven of those are going to be poured out. The last three trumpet judgments which are judgments against people, are going to occur. There's going to be a time of torture when they'll beg to die, but they can't die. And then there's going to be a time when a third of the human race is killed by fire, smoke, and brimstone. Then we will see the beginning of the Armageddon campaign, the battle to end battles before the Lord returns. Uh, well, it will be underway before he returns. He will stop the battle with his return. That will also, it'll be a time, the last and a half years will be a time of ecumenical religious uh, strength that has never been seen before, but at the end of that three and a half year period, we will see the fall of ecumenical religion. The second advent of Christ, his return to the earth as he lands atop the Mount of Olives will take place. He'll bring about the conclusion to the Armageddon campaign. Uh, he will... Uh, cast the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. Satan will be bound in the bottomless pit. Operation Footstool will occur. We'll talk about that a little later. Resurrection of the Old Testament saints will take place. We saw last week that the Old Testament saints are not raised at the same time that the New Testament saints are. Each group is raised in his own order. Word order is translated in 1 Corinthians uh, from a, uh, that's in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, from a military word, which means in their own battalion, which was, was the first fruits of the dead. The church is the second fruits, then the Old Testament saints, and then those that uh, as believers die during the millennium uh, will be raised. So there'll actually be four different battalion raisings or company raisings in what is called the first resurrection, the resurrection of believers. Because the Jewish age does not end until 
the tribulation is over, the Old Testament saints are not raised at the same time as the church saints. And we'll look at some of that in a little greater detail. The baptism of fire. You remember that John the Baptist said that he came baptizing with water, but the one that came after him would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, it's fine to, to desire that baptism of the Holy Spirit, and uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is actually the baptism where the Holy Spirit is the agent doing the baptizing, and it simply means the Holy Spirit baptizes us in Christ, or immerses us into union with Christ. Uh, we don't want that baptism of fire. Remember, fire is always used in the Bible as a symbol of judgment. And it's going to be God pouring out judgment uh, in the uh, various groups that are going to be judged uh, through the baptism of fire. There'll be the regathering of Israel from all nations uh, of the earth, the completion uh, and fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets from the Old Testament. And uh, then there will... Uh, in, in the baptism of fire, the Gentile judgment will occur, and then uh, the Jewish judgment will follow the Feast of Trumpets. The curse will be removed from the earth, which will be the completion of the Feast of Atonement. We'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the eternal, uh, the millennial kingdom uh, will be established with Christ taking the throne and fulfilling the Feast of Tabernacles and ruling and reigning for a thousand years. No, didn't have to go six weeks. We finished up. No, I guess not. That's a general breakdown of the major events that are going to occur and that are recorded uh, beginning at the sixth chapter, uh, actually introduced in the fifth chapter, and beginning then with the breaking of the first seal in the sixth chapter of Revelation. I'd like for you to go back with me now then to the first half of the tribulation and uh, for us to uh, look at the seven seal judgments uh, as they are uh, identified. And uh, I do not have this in, in an outline or printed form for you. Uh, perhaps before the study ends, we can get that for you. Uh, but I did not have it tonight. Let me just go over these uh seven seal judgments and begin by identifying them as general uh, the general characteristics uh, of them the uh, biblical passage is Genesis 1 uh, excuse me uh, Revelation 6 1 through 17 and uh, Revelation 8 1 in those uh, verses we deal with the seven seal judgment remind you that the tribulational period is the end of the Jewish age. That they were promised, as we studied earlier, 490 years that they were to be the stewards of God's administration. That promise was given uh, to begin, it was given to Daniel, it was to begin when Artaxerxes signed the decree for the Jews to go back out of the Babylonian and per Persian or Chaldean captivity uh, and rebuild Jerusalem to repossess the land. They were taken out of it because for 490 years they had not observed the sabbatical year under the Levitical law in which they were to let the land lay by and rely upon God's grace to provide that seventh year. 
490 years went by with their refusal to do that, and so God took them out of the land, uh, getting every seventh year, which then uh, resulted in 70 years that they'd owed God. And so God took them out, and the land laid by for 70 years. When you study their departure out of the land, they actually went out in three different groups. And they came back in three different groups. And it's interesting to see how uh, uniform God is and, and how exact he is. Uh, the first group that returned, uh, returned exactly 70 years after the first group left. The second group that returned, returned exactly 70 years after the second group left. And the third group returned exactly 70 years after the third and final group were taken out of the land. And so the uh, full 70 years were realized uh, in uh, the restoration of the land. Uh, they then were given an opportunity of another 490 years. And earlier we studied that that 490 years was to be divided into three periods of time. 49 years of trouble in which historically we can see it did take them 49 years to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This after Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed everything. And uh, to reestablish, uh, secure the land, and then the trouble ended. At the 483rd year, the Messiah was to be killed. And we've seen already that documents uh, archaeologists have uh, revealed have shown us that not only to the 483rd year, but to the very day that Artaxerxes signed the decree. On the 14th day of the month of Abib, uh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was killed as was prophesied. And then there was another seven years. That's defined in Scripture in the book of Daniel as the 70th week of Daniel. And we're going to look at that uh, a little later, uh, probably next week. We'll, we'll be tying Daniel in with this uh, because there's some things that we need to identify that relate to especially uh, the tribulational period and predominantly the of the tribulation. And so we'll be looking in Daniel as well uh, next week, the Lord willing. So this seven years is what is taking place as it being fulfilled during the seven-year tribulational period. The church has been raptured and is in heaven when that begins. Uh, chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation gave us a, a quick glimpse of what was going on in heaven. And uh, then in chapter 5, verses th 6, uh, 8, we see the Lamb of God. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ take the book and that ancient scroll, a uh, long sheet of paper that was rolled up and sealed uh, at the break. And the Lord Jesus Christ then breaks the first seal and unrolls it a little bit as we move into the sixth chapter. And uh, as he unrolls it, he reveals the first judgment. He then breaks the second seal and unrolls it a little further, revealing the second judgment. And he continues until he has broken all six uh, of the seals, uh, well, until he breaks six of the seals. And then the seventh seal is open in the eighth chapter, verse 1. Uh, it's not opened until what is given in Revelation 7 transpires. Uh, Revelation 7 is the evangelization. And so there's a break there. And all throughout Scripture, the principle of God's grace being given before God's judgment being exerted uh, bears true. And even in this tremendous time of judgment upon the earth, grace is going to be offered again and again and again 
uh, that people might respond to God's grace before they experience his eternal judgment uh, as it comes. All right. The first seal is recorded in Revelation 6, 1 and 2. And it is a period of dictatorship. We might say a power politics through the projection of a very unique personality, a personality of a strong and powerful person that is uh, going to capture the imagination of people, his personality more than his ethics, more than his character, uh, is going to be the focus of attention. And the principle that we see during this time is that judgment will come through dictators. The white horse is used as a symbol of conquest and of the pseudo-peace that is going to follow. Napoleon rode a white horse as victor. Japanese uh, generals rode white horses to symbolize their victory and their victory parades. Roman generals rode white horses uh, in their uh, victory uh, marches. And so we find the white horse symbolizing uh, a, a time of power politics through dictators and two predominant uh, dictators are going to come on the scene and they are identified as the beast out of the land and the beast out of the sea that we'll look at uh, in more detail in a few minutes. The second seal is broken, verses 3 and 4 of, Revela of Revelation 6. <clears throat> And it introduces a period of warfare. That pseudo-peace didn't last all that long. The principle that we see out of this second seal is that the peaceniks can cry all they want. Peace, peace, but there's not going to be any peace. War is going to continue to remain on the earth until Christ himself comes and stops war. The... Uh, in, under this pseudo-peace, it will be short-lived, and the red horse of the second seal, red being the color of blood, identifies warfare and bloodshed that's going to occur. The third seal is broken in verses 5 and 6, and it introduces a period of famine uh, and inflation, a time uh, when there is going to be tremendous uh, famine and inflation is going to uh, beat all that we have even imagined uh, during that period of time. It is represented by a black horse uh, and the rider on the black horse has balance, uh, balances and scales and they are symbols of inflation, uh, scarcity of food, uh, a famine that all tie together in that. It's going to be a time then of famine uh, and resulting uh, death uh, as a result of the scarcity of food and inflation. The fourth seal is broken in verse 7 and 8, and it is represented by a pale horse that uh, identifies particularly a point, a time of death. Uh, the pale horse is actually in the Greek text 
ashen. In the Greek, that word is is kind of a deathly green color. And uh, the there is a sword mentioned here for war- warfare. There is a hunger that is identified for famine. Uh, there is death uh, through disease that is identified. And there is going to be death that will occur through the beasts of the earth. Uh, the the word beast here uh, refers to human beasts, not wild animals, but the, the term that is uh, talking about evil personalities uh, that are going to be there. The fifth seal is broken in verses 9 through 11, and it identifies martyrdom, uh, a time of tremendous martyrdom of tribulational believers. The sixth seal is broken in verses 12 and 13 and uh, reveals some unusual natural and celestial disturbances that are going to take place. Uh, The unusual weather conditions that are going to uh, come about, uh, floods and earthquakes, uh, meteorites striking the earth, and other things that are going to occur. And then before the seventh seal is broken, we have the intervention of chapter 7 of Revelation, in which we have evangelism uh, being emphasized, and specifically the evangelism by the 144,000 that are identified in Scripture. And then it's we have to get to the eighth chapter, verse 1, before we have the seventh seal broken, Number seven seal comes the seven trumpet judgments, which are so terrifying that when John sees it occur, uh, there is a space of silence, uh, or there is dead silence in heaven for the space of a half hour. Some have tried to use that scripture verse to say there's not going to be any women in heaven because there's silence for a space of a half hour. Some chauvinistic men would suggest that a woman could not be silent that long, but I would not be among those for that would be quickly the identification that neither will there be any preachers. <laughs> the terrifying effect just causes a, a silence to permeate heaven when the trumpet judgments are revealed. Right, let's look at the 144,000 uh, that are dealt with then. Uh, in the uh, 7th chapter of Revelation, 144,000 Jews are going to uh, become evangelists and are going to uh, do the work of evangelization. Now we need to introduce them first of all by identifying a few things about evangelism during the tribulation. Uh, Salvation uh, has always been the same and will continue to be the same in every period of time. Adam and Eve were saved by faith in the promised Messiah, in the Lord Jesus Christ, looking forward to it. Old Testament saints in the time of Noah, and there weren't many of them, where Noah and his immediate family were saved by faith, appropriating the grace of God, looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
under the Mosaic law and the Levitical system. Salvation was by grace through faith as it pointed to the character and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as he came to be known during the uh, Levitical system. In our generation, we are saved by faith appropriating the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're now on this side of the cross, and it's historical as we look back upon it. During the tribulation, believers will be saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It will not be in the resumption of their sacrificial system, but in their embracing Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Salvation is the same yesterday, today, and throughout the span of man's existence. It's God's grace being appropriated by faith or believing. And before it was in a promise, and now it is in the one who has fulfilled that promise. So during the tribulational period, salvation will remain the same. We buy grace through faith. The opportunity for God's government will be seen all throughout the tribulational period, but very predominantly in the first three and a half years through the 144,000 evangelists and then through the final two witnesses during the last three and a half years. The tribulation is going to be the most religious period of all human history. Now I said religious, not Christian. Religion is of the devil. Religion is man attempting to earn God's favor uh, or credibility by his own accomplishment. Salvation is the recognition that we are unable to measure up and are throwing ourselves upon his mercy and appropriating the grace that he's already provided. And so there is going to be a tremendous ecumenical religious movement that is going to sweep across the world during the tribulational period. I think we're already seeing the ground swells for that as it's beginning uh, to build up. Tribulational period will also be the period of the greatest evangelization that has ever occurred in human history. Uh, there will not be any national entity that will not be uh, evangelized during that period of time. So there's going to result a continual struggle and a great conflict between uh, uh, the ecumenical religion and uh, those that have been regenerated. Uh, there's an unseen struggle that's already going on between fallen angels and elect angels and uh, believers are caught up in the midst of that, but it will be far more visible during the tribulational days. Evangelism will then be to the maximum uh, as it has never been before. Actually, there are going to be four ways in which, the, in which evangelization is going to occur during the tribulation. Uh, the first is the ministry of the 144,000 that we've talked about and are going to look at. Then there will be the converts of the 144,000. And then the two special witnesses uh, in Jerusalem. And then finally, angels themselves are going to evangelize the entire world just prior to the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only time that we have any record of that ever occurring uh, and it will occur according to Revelation 14, verses 6-7 uh, during the tribulation. 
Again, the principle is, as it's always been, grace before judgment. The catastrophe that is described in Revelation 6 will take place only after the 144,000 have been uh, saved and have evangelized and are sealed. The uh, 144,000 we need to take a quick look at. Revelation chapter 7 verse 4 uh, identifies or introduces these tribulation evangelists as Jews. In the age of, of Israel, uh, the Israelites, the Jewish people, uh, were only the custodians, the stewards of God's divine revelation. They had a responsibility of disseminating the gospel throughout the world, but they failed utterly in doing that. And so during the tribulational period, we find that the 144,000 are going to be a little more effective than the first uh, Jewish stewards were. They're going to have another chance. And they will do more evangelization during the tribulation than they did the entire 483 years uh, after they went back from the Babylonian captivity. Their ministry worldwide, according to verse 9 of chapter 7, and... Uh, this group of evangelists are going to be saved immediately after the rapture according to Revelation 14.4. And I'll try to get you some documentation of these uh, things later on. The description of this great evangelistic team of 144,000 is given in verses 5 through 8 of Revelation 7. Judah is mentioned first, and they are the ruling tribe of the children of Israel. Reuben should have been mentioned first because Reuben was the firstborn, but he lost the rulership to Judah. And he lost the priesthood to Levi, and he lost the double portion to Joseph. Dan, and I think we mentioned this earlier, Palestine will come from the tribe of Dan. The Antichrist himself will come from the tribe of Dan. And so the tribe of Dan is omitted, and the tribe of Joseph is identified uh, as Joseph and Manasseh, uh, getting the double portion and listed then to give us 12 tribes and uh, 12,000 from each of the 12, 144,000. The uh, evangelist during that time, these 144,000, will live under the law of supreme sacrifice and celibacy uh, as they are identified. Uh, and that they will work together as a team is quite evident. Oh boy, what we could do today if we had a hundred, uh, an evangelistic team made up of 144,000, huh? But Christ has got an evangelistic team called the church made up of far more than that. <laughs> uh, I hope they're more effective than we are uh, oftentimes. Uh, in our evangelization. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, we find that they were sealed with a seal so that they could not be harmed, so that they could do their work. And the results of their evangelization is given in verses 9 uh, through 14 of the 7th chapter of Revelation.
Now let me introduce you to the two beasts that are going to be dominant during the tribulational period. The, uh, by way of introduction, let me uh, make an explanation about the term Antichrist. The, the Greek word anti can be translated one of two ways. It can be translated instead of, or it can be translated against. And the other aspects of grammar in the context have to indicate which is being used. The category that we are referring to when we think about the Antichrist is not against Christ, but instead of Christ. In uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, uh, the writer identifies that there are many Antichrists. And uh, as it's used there, uh, it's used against Christ. But the Antichrist is the one who attempts to take Christ's place, who, takes, who attempts to be the Messiah instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that term is actually used of both beasts uh, by many people, but and in a technical way, it certainly could apply to both. Uh, but uh, to be more accurate in the way it breaks down in in the Revelation account, we need to think of the dictator of Palestine the beast out of the land being the Antichrist, uh, the dictator out of the sea uh, tries to take the place of God, not just the place of Christ. And so uh, we'll look uh, at them in that light and, and think of the Antichrist then of being the false prophet or the beast or dictator of Palestine. He will uh, come to the Jews uh, and will deceive them into thinking that he is the Messiah. Uh, Daniel chapter 11, uh, verse 12, uh, 37 deals with that, as well as Revelation 13, 11, uh, in which he will try to present himself as the Lamb of God. I've already said that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan, the dictator out of uh, the land that will rule over Israel, will come from the tribe of Dan. Uh, Genesis chapter 49, uh, verses 16 and 8 through 18 indicate that, and uh, we'll, we'll not touch on that uh, at this particular point. The dictator of Palestine, or Israel, divides the land for gain and uh, counterfeits the Abrahamic covenant uh, according to Daniel 11.39, and we'll have some more comment about that a little later. Now let's look at the two beasts. Revelation chapter 13 verses 1 through 10 uh, serve as biblical background uh, for the first beast, the one that I have called the D-R-R-E, uh, the dictator of the revived Roman Empire. He is a Gentile. I, uh, people try to identify and have tried throughout the years to identify who the uh, beast, the first beast, by using the numbers 666. 
identified uh, in the book of Revelation and that we're going to be looking at a little later as the mark of the beast, uh, using that, n that number to try to determine who uh, the beast is going to be. Uh, it has been uh, using those numbers in a way has been used to say it was Hitler. Hitler was going to be the uh, dictator. Uh, others have said, no, it was the Pope. Uh, a few years ago, it was Henry Kissinger. Uh, there was a strong movement among uh, Bible, uh, potential Bible scholars, I suppose is the term to identify uh, them, that uh, Kissinger's name fit in and using the, the numerical sequence of his name. But that has to be immediately ruled out because Kissinger is a Jew. And the beast that we're speaking of that is going to be the dictator identified as the first beast that comes out of the sea is a Gentile. And so it is not uh, Henry Kissinger. If you want to make him the false prophet, well, uh, better get him a little more active than he is not right now uh, in the political scope of things. I've never uh, been able to... in the news right now, they're talking about the resolution of 660, which means... I've been told is an up coming to that point. Oh, is that right? To to bring it up to six six six. Yeah. Okay. There's some interesting things about that number six six six. I I think I mentioned the first night that it it is on the buses in Israel, and when you try to inquire why it's there, nobody knows. I don't know who issued the order to put it on there, but uh, as far as as they're talking, no, no, just supposed to be on the buses. Uh, a whole lot of things of that nature. But the dictator of the revived Roman Empire is going to be a Gentile, uh, and so not a Jew. Politically, uh, he is going to be, and I've identified him as the dictator of the revived Roman Empire because uh, the scripture identifies a, uh, a confederation of nations, part of which were in the original Roman Empire, and... Uh, additional nations that were not in the original Roman Empire that are going to be a, a confederation of ten nations that he will rule over. Now, there is going to be a blending of religion and uh, politics. And he is not only going to be the uh, dictator of this revived Roman Empire, but religiously, he is going to be the head of the ecumenical religion. And uh, I call that the World Council of Churches, uh, for whatever that might hold. He is going to be under the direct jurisdiction of Satan, according to verse 2 of the 13th chapter of Revelation. 13th chapter, verses 1 through 10, remember, deal specifically with him. He is demon-possessed according to Revelation 16, 13. He is able to perform miracles and do all sorts of miraculous things. Uh, Revelation 9, 11, 11, 7, and 17, 6 all identify some of that. He's called a beast because he is demon-possessed. And in his method of operation and in his thought pattern, he's going to be like a wild animal there. Two different Greek words for beast. Uh, therion is used for a beast 
uh, identifying a wild animal. Uh, Zune is used uh, for the uh, angelic uh, kingdom beasts, uh, the, the four beasts that were before the throne, living creatures, we identify them. And so uh, the word Therion is used here uh, as it identifies uh, the human being acting like a wild animal. The demon that indwells this beast will be the source of motivation and empowerment uh, for this dictator uh, and is identified as one of uh, the, the highest in the rank of fallen angels. According to Revelation 9-11, he is identified as Apollyon. Now that's a Greek name. Uh, the Hebrew name is Abaddon. And uh, he's an angel that is in command of the fallen angels that are in the bottomless pit. See how far I should go here. There are uh, three actual groups of angels instead of two in the world today that are identified in Scripture. Uh, the elect angels are those holy angels uh, under Gabriel uh, and uh, Michael uh, under the Godhead of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that did not rebel against God. Under Satan, who was Lucifer, who was an archangel corresponding to Michael and Gabriel, each of the, the persons of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had an archangel under them. Uh, the angel under the Father is Michael, and wherever you find Michael mentioned, uh, the work of the Father is in view. Uh, Gabriel is under the Holy Spirit, and wherever you find Gabriel mentioned, the Holy Spirit is in view, the work of the Holy Spirit is in view. Lucifer was under the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, and wherever you find him mentioned, he was to be the covering angel, the anointed cherub. But he tried to overthrow God, and so uh, he no longer holds that position. Those that went with him, and he took all the angels under him with him in that rebellion a third of the angels, and they are divided today into two groups. One group that is operative on the earth as demonic spirits. Another group that are incarcerated in the bottomless pit. They were on the earth during the time of Noah. But as a result of what they attempted to do during the time of Noah, they have been incarcerated in the bottomless pit and are kept until the tribulation. In the last half of the tribulation, they're going to be released. Now, uh, oh well, why not spill the whole thing? In Genesis chapter 6, there is the term used that the sons of God looked upon the daughters of men and saw that they were fair and Ladies, you got shortchanged in the translation. It means beautiful. And uh, the sons of God took them wives of all whom they chose. There are two different schools of theology in interpreting who the sons of God are. The one school of theology says that they are the godly descendants of Seth and the daughters of men are the ungodly descendants of Cain. 
The second school of theology says, no, sons of God are fallen angels. And so if that is the interpretation, angels cohabited with human women and produced a super race, half angel and half human, I'm in that group that of the second school of theology that believes that this was angels that cohabited and that they were specifically were fallen angels and time doesn't allow for us to document that thoroughly. But let me just give you uh, a brief reason as to why. The first reason being that the term sons of God is used both of angels and of humans. But in the Hebrew... There is a distinction when it is used of humans apart from angels. When humans are in view, the Hebrew term is bini Elohim. When angelic beings are in view, it is banaha Elohim. In Genesis 6, it is banaha Elohim. And that would break tradition with all of the other usages in the Old Testament if it were referring to humans, as others have identified them as the godly descendants of Seth. Second problem, uh, or reason, lies in the fact that in your English Bible, in the King James English, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. If you've got a New American Standard, it said there were Nephalia in the earth in those days. The King's translators translated the word Nephalia, giants. It does not mean giants. Uh, it literally means fallen ones. The New American Standard translators didn't translate the word. They just brought the word into the language so you could make some judgments as to what it was talking about. It says when these fallen ones, in the Hebrew, when these fallen ones, sons of God, Benaha Elohim, cohabited with women, they produced a super race, men of renown. And that's where Greek mythology came from. Remember, Greek mythology talked about half gods and half humans, that the gods came down. Well, it was, the, it was the angels, the fallen angels, not just angels, but fallen angels that cohabited with them. If you proceed through that passage, you'll find that God says in 120 years, man will no longer be flesh. Because the infiltration would be so complete in 120 years that man, there would no longer be pure humanity. As you proceed further in that same context, you'll find that it says, however, Noah was perfect in his genealogy. Now why does it talk about him being perfect in his genealogy? Because there had no been no angelic infiltration in the genealogy of Noah and his family. His father's name was Lamech. His grandfather's name was Methuselah. By the way, the word Methuselah means the end of an age, and the year Methuselah died, the flood came. That age ended, and uh, Scripture we can document it to the year, we can't document it to the day, but uh, it would, I guess, that the day that Methuselah died, the flood came. So there was the, through the lineage or the genealogy genealogy of Noah, there was no angelic infiltration. Uh, God says that all flesh had intermixed his way, and, and the King James uses the word corrupted its way, but the Hebrew words means to intermix. When you get over into the book of Jude, it says that what happened... Uh, during the day of Noah, uh, among the folks that were living during that time, it's the same thing that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
that they were going after strange flesh, a flesh of another kind. And in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah, homosexuality, lesbianism, and bestiality were the order of the day. And so in the in, in comparing that as well as some passages in First Peter, uh, I'm among the school that believes these angelic beings fallen, sought to infiltrate the human race. Satan had been told that the seed of the woman would destroy him. If he could infiltrate the human race so that there was no pure seed of the woman, he could defeat that. He was almost able to do that. There was just one family left, the family of Noah. And God stopped that attack those angels are incarcerated in the bottomless pit, the lowest abyss. And they are kept there, reserved in darkness and chains until the last half of the tribulation when they are going to wreak havoc upon the earth again. So uh, the bottomless pit that are identified uh, in the bottomless pit are ruled over by a high-ranking fallen angel, Apollyon or Abaddon, uh, either the Hebrew or the Greek or the Hebrew name, and he is the one that will uh, indwell the dictator of the revived Roman Empire during this time of tribulation. The dictator of the revived Roman Empire has many different names. In Revelation 13, 1, he is called beast out of the sea. In Revelation 6, 2, he is seen as the rider of the white horse. In Revelation 17, 8 through 13, he is the beast that has seven heads and ten horns. We'll need to talk about those a little later. In Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel 7, 8, he is the little horn. In Daniel 9, 26, he is the prince that shall come. In 2 Thessalonians 2 through 10 of the New Testament, he is the man of sin. In Daniel chapter 2, his empire uh, is the feet of the image that Daniel sees erected. If you take 2 Thessalonians 2 and harmonize that with Revelation 13, 1 through 10, you will get a picture of a very brilliant person. A man who is able to create uh, marvelous public relations uh, and who is humanly very attractive, uh, even as Satan himself was attractive. I don't know if you've ever studied the appearance of Satan, but uh, I think he probably fathered the image that's on the Louisiana Tabasco sauce, uh, the red epidermis, the horns, the, the hooded figure with the forked tail and uh, trident in his hand. Uh, that's the furthest thing from the real picture of Satan. He is described as being most beautiful of all of God's creation, of being genius in his intellect, having a voice like a like an orchestra, and on and on the description goes in, in Scripture as it talks about him being very beautiful. And uh, so the dictator of the revived Roman Empire is also going to have tremendous appeal uh, in his appearance, in his PR, uh, in his uh, genius a genius intellect and all that uh, goes to uh, make up his personality and being. The world uh, is going to be astonished and taken in by him uh, with his tremendous rise to power according to Revelation 13, uh, 
three, a very uh, quick rise to power. The European Common Part, Common Mart, I believe at the present time, uh, could serve very easily as the vehicle for this revived uh, Roman Empire. Not saying that it has to be. Uh, I believe that we're living in that time in which we're going to see this thing become fruition, but then the Apostle Paul did too. One confidence that we have is we're 2,000 years closer to being right than he was, but we could be another 2,000 years away from it. I really doubt that by Bible prophecy, but uh, I think uh, the dictator of the revival of the empire is probably alive on the earth right now and uh, could become very visible. I do not see him as Gorbachev, some point to his charisma and all, uh, but Gorbachev, if, if he serves as a dictator of Gog or Magog, uh, the kingdom of the north is distinct from the kingdom of the west and does not fit into the picture of being part of that revived Roman Empire. Uh, that's going to come from Europe and that area. And so uh, I do not know if, if he's already a world figure, uh, but if he is alive on the earth, I feel that he is alive, but uh, based on Bible prophecy, but could certainly not document uh, that dogmatically. It's simply a, uh, a persuasion of my own. He will, will come to power in a mighty way. The European Common March said a, a, a few years ago, we're looking for a man. A man that will lead us and unite us and bring us peace and power. And be he God or be he devil, we'll follow him. So they've got all the credentials for recognizing and putting this man in authority, uh, whether or not they serve as the vehicle at that time yet remains to be seen. The second beast. Any input you have right now, I just blast away, you know, unless you flag me down. Right, let's look at, at the second beast for a moment. Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18 are the biblical uh, context for dealing with him. Dictator of, of Israel or uh, the false prophet or the Antichrist. He is a Jew. Verse 11 out of chapter 13 says he comes out of the earth, literally out of the land, which refers to Palestine. When we harmonize that with Daniel chapter 11, verse 37, where he is identified as the God of our fathers, uh, or the term God of our fathers is used by him to identify him as being a Jew. Politically, he will be the ruler of Israel in the tribulation. Religiously, he passes himself off as the promised Messiah. And therefore, he is the religious leader of the Neo-Judaism of that day. In verse 11 of chapter 13 of Revelation, uh, the term like a lamb is used as an analogy. In Daniel 11, 36-38, Daniel says that he shall magnify himself above all. He will set himself up as Savior, according to Daniel 11, verse 36. He will divide the land for his own gain, according to Daniel 11, 39. And in that way, then, he makes himself the Antichrist instead of Christ, 
and even against Christ, if you want to take it to that further degree. He too, like the first beast, is under the jurisdiction of Satan. Revelation chapter 13 verse 2 says that uh, the dragon, speaking of Satan, gave the first beast his power. In Revelation 13 11, uh, the term another beast is used, and the Greeks have two words for another. Uh, another of the same kind, alalus, and another of a different kind, heteros. And the word alalus is used here to be another beast of the same kind, uh, identifying one that's been given his power uh, by demonic possession. He is... Uh, further identified as being demon-possessed in Revelation 16, 13. Matter of fact, in the 11th verse of Revelation 13, it says he spake as a dragon uh, to further identify that. Again, he too is called a beast because he has uncontrolled rule over many people and acts as a wild animal. He will be able to perform miracles as well, according to Revelation 13, 13, and also has a number of different names. In Revelation 13, 11, he is the beast out of the land of Palestine. In Revelation 16, 13, 19, 20, and 20, 10, he is identified as the false prophet. In Daniel 11, 36 through 40, he is called the willful king. In Genesis chapter 49, verses 16 through 18, he is from the tribe of Dan, and Dan is identified as Dan the serpent, uh, and is the serpent that strikes the horse's heel. And uh, we'll look at that a little more later on. He's also referred to as the Antichrist. His rise to power is, is going to be uh, kind of coterminous with uh, the first beast. They are going to come into tremendous world prominence together. He will rule and reign over Israel and uh, establishes the new or neo-Judaism uh, during the tribulation. And in the middle of the tribulation, he will establish a unique alliance uh, between himself and the dictator of the revived Roman Empire. He'll do that because he wants his help at that point. The dictator of Israel then will cause the mark of the beast to be accepted in Israel. And that will result in the loss of freedom uh, for him and for his people, uh, according to Revelation 13, 16, uh, and 17. So this introduces these two prominent figures, uh, one identified as the king of the West later on, the dictator of the revived Roman Empire will be identified as the king of the West, uh, the other being identified as the ruler of Israel. And uh, then there will be three other prominent personages. Uh, the, the king of the north, which will be the leader of the Soviet people. The king of the east, which will be the leader of the oriental uh, bloc. And the king of the south, which will be the leader of the uh, Arabic bloc. Uh, those four spheres of influence uh, will be visible during uh, the tribulation 
uh, in addition, Israel itself and Israel will become the focal point of attack by those four spheres of influence uh, in the Battle of Armageddon uh, that we will study uh, in a week or two related to that. Okay, I, that's a lot of material. <laughs> I know that. I want you to know I know that. Okay, And uh, it would be helpful if you had all that in uh, written form that you could at least uh, do some reference documentation on it. And we'll attempt to, to do that for you. Any question, though, that I might... Huh. Yeah, I do. I have one. To... You said I'm 1316. Uh-huh. Because of the mark. Let's be taken... But only in Israel? No. It will be taken, uh, it will be worldwide, but the dictator of power uh, of Israel will see that his folks take it. He will control them, and so he will be the one that will enforce it there, even though uh, otherwise they might not relate. That's That was my point, that he will see that it, it takes place in Israel. No, it will be worldwide. will predominantly begin in uh, in the European, well, the dictator revived Roman Empire sphere, to be accurate. Uh, there are currently three conspiracies that I am aware of that are underway to bring about a one-world mark or monetary system, means of buying and selling. Uh, there is the, the one in Scripture uh, that is angelic and, uh, and uh, demonic. There is the conspiracy of some of our world bankers uh, in their confederation, uh, Trilateral Commission and some of the other organizations that established to bring an economic balance between nations and establish a one-world money uh, system. And by the way, the European Common Market already has it printed, ready to distribute if they can just put the thing together and get it to go. Uh, and then there is another uh, organization that is uh, poo-pooed by, by many today, but uh, it is the Illuminati conspiracy. Uh, whose symbol appears on the dollar bills that we uh, carry around here in the United States, uh, conspiracy that they have that is more uh, oriented to uh, sorcery and witchcraft that have the same goals and the same objectives uh, and are moving uh, in that direction. So uh, at least three that I'm aware of that are, that are operative uh, and moving toward those same goals, I think, in reality, they're all spearheaded by the same uh, force, and that being Satan himself, uh, to, to bring this about. But that is going to be, uh, whether it's introduced during our time before the rapture or immediately following the rapture, it's certainly going to come on the scene uh, during the tribulational period, and, and you'll not be able to buy or sell without the mark. Uh, and we'll... Uh, look at the mark of the beast next week uh, and talk about some things uh, as they relate there too. All right, any other question or comment about that that we've 
very quickly covered. And let me just add to that because that might not be enough for you to digest. Uh, let me just review the seven trumpet judgments because part of these are going to take place during the first half of tribulation. And I'm wanting to deal with the, the things that are going to take place during the tribulation uh, tonight. A trumpet judgment is a judgment that takes place during the tribulation and they're directed toward the Gentile unbelievers who are going to be responsible for the death of tribulation martyrs according to Revelation 9 verses 20 through 21. In Revelation 8 verses 3 through 5 we have prayer being heard uh, of believers who were martyred during the tribulation and uh, it's in answer to their prayers that these judgments occur. In Revelation 8 there are only four of the seven trumpets. The rest are in Revelation 9 and in Revelation 11, verse 15. The first four use nature uh, for the judgment and are described in seven verses, verses 7 through 13 of Revelation 8. The last three trumpets are directed against mankind and are described in verses, uh, are in 22 verses, covered in Revelation 9 and in Revelation 11, 15. The trumpet judgments are held up. They're ready to be issued, but they're held up until the 144,000 evangelists that we looked at are sealed. And uh, so Revelation 7, 1 through 3 occurs uh, before uh, the events of Revelation 8. The first six seals are in Revelation 6, and the seventh seal... Uh, was in Revelation 8 that we've already looked at. The seventh trumpet is the announcement of the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the bile judgments uh, are associated with that, and we'll be looking at them when we look at the second half of tribulation. The first four trumpets, then, are in Revelation 8. And uh, they're outlined uh, briefly in the handout that we gave out tonight. Uh, identifying uh, the uh, that on page one of the outline, uh, item seven, first four trumpet judgments, natural disasters. Uh, first against vegetation, we see that a third of the sea becomes blood, a third of the sea creatures are killed, and a third of the transportation by way of the sea is destroyed. And then there is one against fresh water where a third of the, of the fresh water supply becomes poison. And then a third of the sun is lost. A third of the moon and stars are lost. A third of the time during the day is dark. A third of the time during the night is total darkness. Uh, those uh, events are dealt with uh, during the trumpet judgments. Uh, the first four trumpet judgments. And... Uh, the uh, the fifth judgment is given in chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, and introduces three woes. And he says, if you think it's been bad up till now, woe unto you that yet remain, because it, there are three woes yet to come. 
And the first woe is the fifth trumpet. It's the first invasion. It will be torture without death, and it's going to be generated by those fallen angels that suggest cohabited with women on the earth in the Noahic time and are bound in the bottomless pit, the lowest of is called Tartarus. They are going to be released, and uh, they're described uh, as, as being like horses but having a tail with a sting of a scorpion, uh, and they are going to bring tremendous pain, uh, but the, the, the person will want to die, but he won't be able to die, uh, and it'll just be a time of immense pain. The sixth trumpet is given in chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. It is the second woe, and uh, it is a second invasion where there will be torture with death. Uh, this, these, of course, the fifth and the sixth, will occur during the last half of the tribulation. Well, the, the fifth beginning the last half of tribulation, right at the middle of tribulation, as it starts the last three and a half years, and the torture with death during the last half of tribulation. The purpose of this judgment will be to judge and destroy those that we said were guilty of killing the uh, believers in the first part of the tribulation, the martyrs and the prayers of the tribulational believers being received and answered. There are uh, four angels from the underworld that are under the command of Satan that are going to lead uh, an army made up of two million, two hundred million angels and uh, bring tremendous destruction so that one-third of all of the human race will be killed. Some by fire, uh, according to uh, Revelation 9.17. Some by smoke from suffocation. And some by brimstone, sulfur, uh, perhaps atomic uh, destruction of some form or other. Then in the 10th chapter, you, you may remember, we go back in parentheses, and so it's we skip all the way to the 11th chapter, verse 15, where we have the third woe, which is the baptism of fire and includes the announcement of the second advent. Within 10 days uh, after the, the announcement of the second advent, the two witnesses uh, will be killed and will ascend into heaven and the second advent will occur. Uh, where Christ will come back to the earth and stop the battle of Armageddon, according to 9 and 11, verse 15. So the baptism of fire is, is a bloodbath of judgment on, on all the believers, uh, the unbelievers, rather, at that time and ending with the second advent of Christ to the earth. As we look at the middle of the tribulation and the second half of the tribulation, we'll will bring these judgments uh, up to to account. Did you say after the, the two witnesses uh, rise are taken up to heaven, that's when Christ returns to the earth? Within ten days of that time, Christ will come back to the earth, bringing us with him, stopping the battle, landing atop the Mount of Olives, establishing his kingdom. There's a period of some 75 days, uh, probably for Operation Cleanup, 
uh, before uh, he removes the curse from the earth and the vultures will be eating carcasses. The blood's going to be so thick at the Battle of Armageddon it's said to be as deep as a horse's bridle and run for uh, 600 furlongs. Uh, tremendous devastation during that time. We'll look at those details as we move to the middle of tribulation and the uh, and the second half. I think the, the important thing that we need to focus in on as we close tonight is that for the first half of tribulation, uh, there are some, some real calamities and disasters. They're designed to bring the people to their knees and to repentance. Uh, there, it begins with, with kind of a pseudo-peace with the dictator revived Roman, revived Roman Empire seeming to have all the answers that the world needs. But at three and a half years, the middle of the tribulation, that really turns ugly. And uh, things really get bad so that that part is called the Great Tribulation, separating it from the tribulation uh, itself. All right. I think that's all I have for tonight. That ought to suffice. And again, we'll try to get you some copies of the outline. Question? Argument? Uh, discussion? Comment? No, I don't want to be either. Better watch it from on high. I don't even want to watch it. we'll be pretty busy. I don't know just how much watching we're going to do, but we're going to be being prepared uh, for our eternal rule. I don't know how long the judgment seat of Christ is going to take place, the awards banquet, how long that's going to last, but uh, we'll lose all of our wood, hay, and stubble and only have our gold, silver, and precious own service uh, as we prepare to come back with Christ. The uh, Bible doesn't give a great deal of detail about it, but indicates that we might be busy at some other things. All right. I guess that does it then. Thank you, Troy. What an amazing session. Thank you for enlightening us and challenging us and uh, giving us.